0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, Pastor Jeff is away this weekend, so I get to fill in uh, this wonderful Sunday. My name is Jeremy Neff, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. uh, I'm the pastor of junior high and high school ministry. For those of you who are new here or perhaps don't know me or haven't met me yet, and I have the wonderful privilege of opening up the scriptures with you this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. So while you're turning there, I would like to mention just a few things. The last few weeks, we were doing a series on sort of the identity of heritage, which I thought was extremely helpful and beneficial. How about you guys? Wasn't that great? just to kind of hear the heartbeat of the ministry that we do here and what direction we're headed as a body of believers, what that looks like for the kingdom of God. I I think that was incredibly valuable and important. Now, in light of that, Jeff said that last Sunday, apparently he went super long, and there were so many things that he wanted to say, and just he ran out of time. He just felt like, next thing you know, people are going to pass out from lack of you know blood sugar or whatever and uh, so there's so many things that he he wanted to say and he asked me to just kind of highlight a couple of things that are up and coming for Heritage. One is that um, at some point in the in the near future probably by January we're going to make a transition so that all of the kids are now in the building here um, at at uh, Cascade. So we'll be utilizing classrooms, which means a little bit more work of setup and teardown, but that's an incredible blessing to know that that's coming soon. And not only that, but Pastor Brent has uh, gotten a a new check-in system going that's going to streamline things and make it incredibly easy, and all of that will be rolling out in a few months. Um, In addition to that, Uh, There are a ton of new things on the horizon for our church Uh, Some of it regarding Acts 29 and training that's available And uh, curriculum that's coming to us throughout the next year for discipleship And There's some wonderful, wonderful things that are coming And I just want you to know it's such a privilege to be a pastor at a church That wants to grow and wants to uh, really extend themselves Or lean into the race, if you will And I'm so thankful and privileged to be a part of that um, here at at Heritage. So those are things that are coming. There's some uh, stuff on the horizon that Pastor Jeff especially is super excited about that he'll be sharing with you uh, in in future uh, times together. So we're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and it's really just a launching pad, and um, after that, we're going to kind of spread out all over the scriptures. I'm going to make you work today, I'm not going to lie. Uh, you, You guys are going to have to really pay attention and track with me. There'll be lots of Bible flipping. Now, for those of you who perhaps don't know how to become an instant Bible scholar, I'm going to give you a little tip, okay? This will be super helpful. For those of you who have a ribbon coming out of your Bible or you have a bulletin, you open up to the table of contents, okay? You put that ribbon there or you put a a piece of paper there, and that way when I say turn to Zechariah chapter 3, you know exactly where that's at. You'll just turn right to it like you're a super spiritual stud, So uh, that's the the way to become an instant Bible scholar. We're gonna be traveling through the scriptures today. My hope is to keep it kind of succinct, but I gotta be honest, there's about five pages of notes here, and I'm gonna try and like really condense that down and make it as simple as possible for us. So let's begin. John chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning was the Word. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me and ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law... Was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, open up our hearts to hear the word of your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Grace. Grace upon grace. Now, this is the way that the Apostle John describes for us what God has given us through his Son, grace. Now in Christian circles, grace is a word that is often used. However, my fear is that like many words that get used often, we tend to drift from the meaning of that word. Because it becomes so common that we, we, we kind of stop defining what it actually means. Let me give you a good exam, example. Um, the word literally. How many times do you people hear, do you hear people say things like, my, my head is literally splitting in half right now? <laughs> I don't think that means what you think it means funny how words can actually come to me in the exact opposite even of what their intended meaning is we do this all kinds of places in language but the one place we don't ever want to do that is with the grace of God amen we want to understand it we want to know what it means so for the next few minutes that we're together I'd like to unpack how it is that grace is used in the scriptures This will be less of an exegetical verse-by-verse thing and sort of a, a, a more highlights reel of the scriptures and where grace gets used in different places. It's my hope that by the end of this, we will all be in absolute awe of the multifaceted grace of God and the great lengths that God has gone through to care for both the believing and even the unbelieving world. Now, a little bit of history first. I want to talk about the word grace. The New Testament word for grace in the Greek is charis. Now, I'm not going to geek out and pull the Greek out a whole lot, but I do want to give you a good definition of this word because it was used a lot even before the New Testament was written. Originally, it referred to something delightful or beautiful in a person or thing or or, or some sort of an act which brought pleasure to others. And from this came the idea of a favor or a gift that brought pleasure to another. From the recipient's standpoint, it came to mean thanks or thankfulness. Finally, it came to be used in an ethical sense of a favor done freely without any claim or expectation of something in return. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, charis was used to translate the Hebrew word ken, okay? C-H-E-N. And thus, in biblical Greek, came to be associated with the objective relation of an undeserved favor given by a superior to an inferior. Now, I know that's a lot of words. I'm gonna slow it down just a little bit, okay? Grace, originally, was something that a giver would give. The recipient would say, that was gracious. Thank you. I'm really thankful for that gracious gift that you gave me. I didn't do anything to deserve it. There was nothing that I did to earth. You just gave that to me. Whether that be a poem or a song or a dance or flowers or whatever, grace was something that was benevolently give, given from the heart of one who was benevolent and graciously received from the heart of one who was the gift recipient. Now, 1 Peter 5.10 tells us that God is the God of all grace. All grace comes from him. It's all from him. Every single bit of it comes from him. Now now there's many ways in which we all come to contact with the grace of God in life. Before we even come to know God in a saving way, we still will come into contact with the grace of God. And in the scriptures there's this, this category that's set aside for these graces that people who don't know Jesus, who have not been saved, whose hearts have not been changed, experience the character graciousness, the goodness of who God is. That category, that sort of junk drawer in which we we put all these different types of graces that God gives to unbelievers is called the common graces, okay? So think of that, common graces. And when you think of common graces, this means that it's common to every man. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you get to experience the goodness of God. He is benevolent towards an entire world. And in fact, he's benevolent to a world who is rejecting him, criticizing him, wants nothing to do with him, denies his existence, and yet at the same time, he's the one who gave them breath and life. Now these common graces go to all people. It's God's love for all people. It's it's God's kindness to everyone, whether they know him or not. So let's look up just a few of those. Let's turn with me real quick to to Psalms, chapter 104. The book of Psalms, just turn to the, the middle of your Bible, and you should be right about there. Psalm 104, verse 14. It says this. You, speaking of God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen a man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home, and the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Here's what he's saying. God, you plan this all out. This is all your idea. Believer, unbeliever, you get food, rain comes down, the grass grows, crops yield fruit. Animals have a place to live. Trees grow up, provide shade and shelter and wood for use. The earth itself is humming with the grace of God. I mean, we think about that. Like you step outside and you, you you're just driving down the car. Every day you, you're down the road with a car. You're, you, you're, you're driving down the road and you see stuff just passing by you. Have you ever stopped to realize, stopped to think about the multiple ways in which the grace of God is being extended to those who are living in rebellion against him? You ever thought about that? The sun, the way it shines and produces all that is needed for life to exist. The tides, the moon is perfectly suspended the correct distance from the earth so that the tides are not too strong or too small so that life can exist. The temperature of the planet, we've got this nice little sort of thermal blanket made out of gases that keep our planet the perfect temperature so that life can exist. We hang on nothing in the middle of super cold space Inside of the earth is this core of heat that is hot enough to melt rock and cold enough on the surface that we don't burn up. We hang the perfect distance from the sun. If we were too much closer, man, we'd get cooked. Too much farther away, cease to exist. Look at all that God has done to make life possible For those that shake their fist at his face. Oh, the grace of God. And though it's common to every man, I would say it's not common at all. Matthew goes on to say that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust, that he daily loads us with benefits. The book of Acts reminds us that it's in him that we live and that we move. Our bodies have animation from what? Have you ever thought about like your heart? Let's just think about your heart for a minute. Your heart is controlled by electrical impulses. Where's the battery? Where is that? How does that happen? In my cranium here is this gray matter. It's spongy and weird and looks like cheese. And yet millions of electrical impulses are flying all over that cheese ball in my head, giving animation to my light, my body. And I'm able to exist and give expression and use words and hand gestures and show love and affection based upon something that is controlling the gray matter. There's something behind the physical aspect of who I am that is giving life and animating my very existence. That's incredible. Do you understand how incredible that is? And every day we live in this miraculous floating sphere hanging on nothing. And God says, Yeah, I did that. Because I love. Because of my grace. Because grace comes from me. He's the God of all grace. And so there is this category of common graces. We see it here in the Psalms so clearly. Now even before a person becomes a Christian, God is then then working to demonstrate his character and nature to them, even through the world around them. But even before that, now let's back up before creation, before time ever existed, before there was space or any other thing, the Bible tells us this, that there was another grace of God at work. That is, that God saw what would happen in this world, how sin would affect it, how the fall would take place. And it is his desire that none would perish and that all would come to repentance. Of course, not everyone will. However, God has accounted for the fall of man and the wickedness of our sin, and he acted before creation ever existed. Before there was anything, he came up with a plan to combat the hardness of mankind's heart and to save the sons and the daughters of Adam from their sin and from the just consequences of their sin. So apart from anything that man could do, because man did not exist, okay? We weren't anything. There was no space, no time, no planet, nothing. Apart from anything man could do to earn God's intention to save them, God acted at that time and came up with a plan on how he was going to save them. God purposed to use Jesus as the vehicle by which he would redeem the world and all those who would put their faith in him. And for our purposes, I'm going to call this grace salvific grace. Salvific. Now that's It sounds fancier than it actually is. It just means a saving grace. Salvific grace is the grace which God planned to extend to the world before the world even existed. This grace is a saving grace. Turn with me to 2 Timothy now. 2 Timothy, New Testament. About three quarters of the way through your Bible. Chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This act of God, this intention of God to save people started before there were people. And this work of God has continued on until this very day. Now, this this good news, this gospel, it needs to be heralded to the nations. It is through this grace being preached that God saves the lost and secures for them the full redemption that he has purposed since before the foundations of the world. This is what Paul is referring to when he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, I'll read it to you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed into the whole world and is bearing fruit and it's increasing as it does also among you. Since the day that you heard it and understood, here it is, and understood the grace, the benevolent gift of God in truth. The whole idea of of being saved was God's idea before there was a need for salvation. Now that's pretty gracious, don't you think? He thought ahead on it, infinitely wise and infinitely gracious. Now, the idea of being saved, though, it it sounds really simple, and that's another one of those terms that we use, like, are you saved? Right, we'll ask that question. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? We try and encapsulate big ideas into small sentences, and sometimes that's helpful. Other times we need to kind of back it up a little bit and take sort of unpack that and say, what does that actually look like? And so the whole idea of being saved is itself sort of confusing to sort out. So Ephesians sheds a little, bit light, a little bit of light on how God's grace uh, works to save us, or, or a better way to say that is that God is acting independently, independently of our works to save us, and he gives expression to that here in Ephesians. Chapter two, probably the most famous verses uh, for those of you who have studied these things or have a good grip on grace. It says this in chapter two, verses eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved. By grace. By the benevolent giving of God without provocation from us, God saved us. Now what's the vehicle that he uses to do that? Through faith. Through faith. Through believing. Or another way to say faith, through trusting in. I love the analogy of the the guy who's a tightrope walker and he he sets up a cable across Niagara Falls and he gets up on it and he, he gets a wheelbarrow and he throws a bunch of stuff in the wheelbarrow and he's balancing across the cable and he makes it to the other side and the crowd is cheering. Yay! Yay! That's awesome. He goes, do you guys believe I can do it again? He goes, and they say, yes, we believe you can do it again. He goes, okay, good. Who wants to get in? You see, that's faith. Faith is when we stop trusting in anything else and we trust in Christ alone to be the one who saves us, who delivers us from the wrath of God, the power of sin, our wicked enemy who pursues us and to take us into glory fully redeemed in every way. It's faith that he uses to save his people. So for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that nobody can boast, so that nobody gets to brag. In other words, when you get to heaven, you're not going to say, God, I earned this. I love Billy Graham and his heart for the Lord. It's just such an inspiration on so many levels. But I heard him preaching one time. I was in my car uh, on the highway and I was flipping radio stations and there's Billy Graham. And in classic Billy Graham voice, he's talking about standing before the Lord. He says, you know, when I stand before the Lord, I'm not gonna say to him, God, I'm Billy Graham, the great evangelist. And thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of people have come to know me or have come to know you through me. I've been the friend of presidents and traveled to virtually every nation in the world. On your behalf, no, he says, when I stand before him, I'm going to say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have trusted in Christ as my only source of righteousness and to him and him alone do I cling. Man, grace. Grace at work in the heart and the lives of believers. This is what God was establishing that by grace nobody would ever stand and say I got this, I earned it. But that we would stand in his presence and know, God, to you alone be all glory. To you alone be all praise. You deserve everything. You have done it all. Before I was alive, you worked to save. While I was in rebellion and alive, you were working to demonstrate your grace. You sustained me with breath and heartbeat and thoughts and gave me capacity to think and receive information. You put me on a glowing mud ball the perfect distance from the sun and the perfect distance from the moon and you caused there to be plants and life and food daily and the right temperature and the perfect mixture of oxygen. God, you sustained me when I was in rebellion against you in order that I might be saved. It's incredible. Incredible grace. So God saves people through faith. This salvation is this gift from God who is a gracious and loving father. However, there's many components to what God is accomplishing through the work of salvation. So let's try and sort of sort them out and seeing the ways in which God's grace acts to save us. Before we are saved, our hearts are corrupt and broken and twisted by sin. So we don't even have a desire for God. We only know a life that revolves around us. And only in the here and now, we can't see into eternity. We don't even think about eternity. So God overcomes this. He says, your heart is broken. Your heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can even understand it or sort it out or know it? Talking about the people in the days of Noah, God said, their hearts were only wicked continuously. That's what was going on, just evil, wicked stuff all the time. That's the state of the unbeliever. Now, there's issues of common grace. Unbelieving moms love their babies because they still bear the image of God. Unbelieving doctors still save lives because they still bear the image, the imprint of the God that they were made to to be an imprint of. But ultimately, the desire to be saved, to be changed, is not present. That part of them has been broken and twisted. And so God works. He works. He makes this promise. He says there's there's coming a time through Ezekiel. There is coming a time when there will be a new grace. Let me read to you Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Actually, turn there, turn there. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Ezekiel, Old Testament right at the tail end of the major prophets. So if you get to Psalms, you've gone too far back, you wanna keep heading towards the New Testament. Ezekiel 36 verse 26. This is the promise that he gives to his people. He says there's coming a time that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Here's what he says. Part of my grace is not just to plan a way of salvation and keep you alive until the moment that you can be saved, But part of my plan is to give you by my grace, as a gift, not because you've earned it, a new heart that's not broken in the same way. A new heart that desires me, that wants my will, that isn't set on selfishness. I'm gonna put in you a new spirit with new desires. I'm gonna change you from the inside. The problem is that even though we have a new heart, the damage is done. Let me, let me put it to you like this. Let's say I'm driving down the road, I'm, I'm on the freeway here, and I'm, I'm not paying attention because I'm talking on my cell phone and I'm going 85 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, I see those wonderful, beautiful lights spinning around behind me and I slow down, pull over, and the police officer comes up to my window and he says... Um, Excuse me, do you know why I pulled you over? And I say, yeah, I was, I was speeding. He says, okay, well, I'm going to have to write you a ticket. I saw you are also talking on your cell phone. And then I use logic that goes like this. Yeah, but you don't understand. All week long, I haven't talked on my cell phone while I was driving. And all week long, I obeyed all the speed laws. I'll say, that's great. You're not going to be punished for all the times you obeyed. You're only being punished for when you disobeyed. You see, a lot of times that's the logic of people. They think if I just do enough good stuff then that makes up for the bad stuff. Does that work out in a court of law? No, not at all. So a new heart, though it changes the desires and orients us now towards God instead of away from God and in rebellion against Him, it doesn't solve the problem of who we are on the inside and what we have done or what we will do in failure in the future. So, although we have been given a regenerating grace as a gift, a new heart, okay, that isn't sufficient in and of itself. There's a penalty for our sin that must be paid. And so God gives us another grace, not just a regenerating grace, but he gives us a justifying grace. In Romans chapter three, verses 23 through 26, it says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, made right with God. Another way to say that is it's just as if I'd never sinned at all, the penalty for my sin having been paid for, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just, the judge who says you broke the law, and the justifier, the one who pays the penalty for the laws that we broke. This is called a justifying grace. A justifying grace. So, let's, let's keep track here. It's one thought, right? We're, we're all moving together with one One thought. God is a benevolent God who before he made anything made a plan to save the people he knew would be corrupted by sin. Then he made everything and he made it work and he sustained life so that those who don't believe in him currently would have all the time possible to be able to believe in him and to be saved. The problem is their hearts are twisted and they're not oriented to God. They're oriented in rebellion against God. So God says, as a part of this grace, I'm going to give a regenerating grace that changes your orientation from rebellion to God towards loving and serving and following Him. But the debt of your sin remains because I'm a just God who doesn't just wink at sin. So I'm going to give now a justifying grace that takes away your sin and pays the penalty for it. Now, So far, this is sounding like a pretty good deal, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that there is an adopting grace. An adopting grace. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. Again, New Testament, going past the Gospels and Romans and first and second Corinthians, Galatians and then Ephesians. Chapter one, verses four through 12, it says this. Now let's pick it up in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. (laughs) An adopting grace. Did you hear that? It's not enough for God to create a way to be saved to sustain us until we get saved, to give us a new heart that we might run towards him instead of away from him, to justify us by his grace and make us be saved by paying for our sins. But also, he says, I don't just want to not be enemies, I want to be family. So come, come. Come into my family. Be a part of, of who I am. Be with me forever. Share full intimacy with me for all of eternity. I don't just want to make you a part of my family. I want to make you co-heirs with Christ. I want to give you an eternal inheritance that can't be taken away, that the stock market won't affect, that, raw, that moths and rust won't corrupt. It's not enough just to save you. I'm bringing you home. Huh. An adoption, an adopting grace. Grace. And then he says, now, that's, that's not all either. There's, there's more. There, I have more grace to give, okay? I, I, there's more than I want to do. I, I don't just want to save you and adopt you into my family, but there's other people I want to adopt into my family. And the people who have been adopted in, they come bearing scars. They come with all kinds of brokenness. And even though their heart is now oriented to me, they still bear the wounds of walking in this world. So, I'm going to use you to heal and minister to one another. And the family is going to minister to the family, and then the family is going to go out and grab more family and bring it in. This is what I would call a ministry grace. And so, God heaps on another helping of grace. He says, It's, it's not just enough to save. To sustain until you can be saved, to give a new heart. It's not just enough for me to take away your sins or just adopt you into my family. Now I'm going to use you in my plan to redeem the world. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, says this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't complain because you have, have to have people over. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, God now dispenses his grace through his adopted sons and daughters to the unsaved and unbelieving world and to the saved and believing world that needs healing. He uses us. We're not just forgiven, we're treasured. We're not just redeemed, but now we're purposeful and being sent and being used by God, by his ministerial grace, by his ministry grace. And then, on top of that, he says, man, there's so much more of my grace that you can understand, that you could come to know I just don't wanna save you and fix your heart and take away your sins and adopt you into my family and use you to minister to others, but I wanna change you now. I wanna change you so that you can experience the glory of what it's like to be me. I'm gonna shape you into the image of my son Jesus. This is called a sanctifying grace. A sanctifying grace, there's two examples of it. Romans chapter six, verse 14, it says this. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. In other words, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you've been freed by the Spirit of God that lives within you to have victory over sin. That is a grace that God gives benevolently to his people. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, says it this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Are, are, are you getting this? Are you getting the point? I did nothing because I wasn't created, so God created and he planned to save. But then I was born in sin and in rebellion against him and never wanted him, so so he made a way for my heart to change and to turn to him. And then, even when it turned to him, I still had sin that had to be paid for, so by his grace, he paid for the sin And then he adopted me into his family. And then he sent me on a mission to be used for his glory. And through the process of being sent and clinging to him, now my life is changing. Grace is working in me presently to make me more like him. To shape my heart, to shape the way I think, to shape the way I see the world. And my mind is being renewed by the washing of the water of the word. And my heart is being purified by the grace of God and the spirit of God at work in me. So God says, here, you had grace. Here's a little bit more grace, and I I heaped on some more grace, and here's a little bit more grace, and now now here's some more grace, and oh wait, I'm not done yet. How about another helping? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul is talking about his life. You can turn there. Paul's talking about his life before he came to know the Lord and he says this about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 10 he says I'm a nobody I'm the least of the apostles I'm I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but By the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, it wasn't my self effort, but it was the grace of God, the energy that was coming in me to go to every single town that I went to and preach the gospel. To get beat up and stoned and left for debt. To end up spending a day and a night floating around in the ocean wondering if this is the moment where I meet Jesus face to face. The grace, the power to work was from God all along in me. And he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we went out and preached, and so you believed. Okay, now check this out. God plans to save the world. (laughs) He sustains us till we can be saved. He orients our heart towards him. He pays for our sin. He adopts us into his family and gives us an inheritance. He sends us out on a mission to preach to the world. And then he says, your strength will fail you in that process. So here's what I'm going to do. You ready? I'm going to heap on another helping of grace. (laughs) And I'm going to empower you to go into the world. I'm going to empower you to be effective for my kingdom. This is an empowering grace from God. And so here we have yet another helping. And he says you're going to need resources, right? You're going to need stuff to do that. So there's a provisional grace. It's found in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift, the word gift there, charis, Grace, and every perfect gift, grace, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. He loads us with all that we need to do all that he's called us to by his grace. And then he says, now, I'm also going to use you in ways that you wouldn't expect. I'm going to use you not just to be a receiver of my grace, but a dispenser of my grace to the world around you. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter chapter one or chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, Paul is talking to the church about a collection that is taken up to help another church that is going through a difficult season. And he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For even in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity in their part. Even though they were super poor, God prompted their hearts to give and to dispense grace to this other hurting part of the church. And he says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You hear that? I mean, for us, a lot of times our experience of giving to God is kind of like you know, like paying bills, right? You go, know, oh, it's time to pay the tithe. Oh, gosh. All right, this is going to hurt. There goes my Starbucks for the next two weeks. When well, you get upset about that. These guys were poor, dirt poor, literally dirt poor. And yet, they begged, oh please, please let us give to our own hurt. Please, we, we want to be a part of this. We, we need to give the grace of God. We have to. You got to let us do this incredible he says and this was not as we expected in verse 5 but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us accordingly we urge Titus that he as he has started so he should complete among you this act of grace so you Corinthians as you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you say that you also excel in this act of grace as well. St. Corinthians, take note from the Macedonians. It wasn't a bill to pay. It was the grace of God being dispensed through them. Let it be your worship. And So there's a financial grace. There's a miraculous grace that's recorded for us where God, in the work of ministry, dispenses a grace for the moment to do something miraculous in that time. Acts chapter six, verse eight says, and Stephen was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. I know for myself, I have seen moments where God, by his grace, acts in powerful, powerful ways to the saving of people, to the healing of bodies, to the working of miracles. Some people will doubt some of those things, but I'll tell you firsthand, I have seen God perform miracles. I have no doubts of whatsoever. The grace of God that is a miraculous grace. And then he says, you know, you're still lacking. Not only do you need provision and being sent out and a mission to accomplish and power to accomplish it and a new heart and payment for your sins and grace to sustain you and keep you alive for all the work that I have to do for you or have to do through you, but also you're going to need to persevere That's going to take some real stick-to-itiveness. It's going to take some strength. You're going to need me for that. So how about another helping of grace? (laughs) And so Philippians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here's what he's saying. (laughs) By God's grace, he's going to sustain you and cause you to persevere. (laughs) this is a great deal. I mean, I'm no businessman. But right now, it sounds like, why would I pass this up? And God says, but wait, that's not all. Let me give you another helping. And he gives to us a glorifying grace. Romans chapter eight, verses 30 through 32, and it says this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He he took away their sins. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then he asks the question, well, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything? Here, future grace. Glorifying grace. You ready? This is what it looks like. Redeemed world, sin is done away with. That heart that was oriented to God, changed from oriented to self and destruction, now has been oriented to God, will be perfected and the sin nature will be done away with. Can you imagine that? Never to face temptation again? To never want rebellion? You know how glorious that's going to be to not have to keep track of your thoughts? to not fight temptation, this body, corrupted, subject to the fall. Which, by the way, I I have a theory. This is a freebie here. I have a theory that when we get to heaven, that uh, the ideal body size is slightly overweight. And the reason I say that is it takes so much work to lose weight that can't be from the Lord. Because it's all of grace, right? So I'm, I'm betting he's going to be like, man, you guys worked super hard to look really unhealthy. You're, you look good with a little chub on you. There's a future grace, a glorifying grace that's coming where we're, our bodies are going to be perfected. We're not going to battle all the problems that come with growing old and aging and dying new and glorified bodies this corruption shall put on incorruption is how paul puts it in first corinthians 15 a future grace where the planet is remade and sin is no longer a feature here and our enemy is destroyed and all those in rebellion against god perish with him A glorifying grace where the gates of the city of God are never closed again, they're open 24-7, where there's no longer a need for the Son because the glory of God himself rests over all that he has made and he is the sustainer of everything. A grace so wonderful that we will live in a place where we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us We will live in the physical, tangible presence of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who paid for our sins. And the weight, the kabod, the glory of God the Father's presence will rest over the top of us. And we will live like that forever. Can you think of anything more glorious than that? Is there anything that you could think of that would be more glorious than that? Listen, grace... It's the dominant theme of the Bible. It, it occurs almost 200 times in the New Testament alone, the subject of grace. Here's, here's, here's an analogy, if I, if I can. I, I know I'm keeping you long. I'm going to wrap this up, I promise. If you've been drifting, come back to me. Imagine that you step out into a river Okay? And, and, and the water is flowing around you. And the water that has gone by, that has already passed you, is like grace that was there before you got there. Right? And, and, and currently, the water that is enveloping you and, and wrapping itself around you is like the grace, the grace that is presently here. And coming is a whole river of endless supply of the grace of God. So when John, the apostle, writes and he says, we have been given grace upon grace, what he's saying is God just keeps pouring it on through his son. That the good news is that grace just keeps coming. It's like a river that's going to drown you. It's the grace of God in our lives. And so, I commend you with one final scripture from 1 Peter. Let me turn there and I'll read it to you. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Or excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.